Um, we have a lot to cover today, so I encourage you to open your Bible to Ephesians 5. And today we're starting a two-week mini-series on marriage uh, as part of our uh, study through the book of Ephesians. Uh, we're lo- looking at Ephesians 5.21 through 33 for the next two Sundays. And this week we're going to look at, um, I, I, all the network pastors are taking a couple of weeks on this passage just because there's so much here um, and felt like it was really important to, to do justice to it. Um, we want to, this week we're going to look at the underlying relationship that Christ creates within the family of God, uh, and that includes within marriage, um, and then we're also going to look at the root of marriage and then the meaning of marriage this week. So then next week we're going to look at the specific commands then that flow out of all that we talk about this week. So rather than trying to cram all of what we're talking about this week into an introduction and then dealing with the, the commands, we're going to lay the groundwork this week and then dive in next week. Um, oh, and we'll also talk about sex. So um, <laughs> so if, you're, if you have children, I'm not going to be gross or anything, but I do want to let you, let you know that we'll hear that word. Uh, I realized that today, as I just said, that we're going to be talking about marriage. Um, there are several different reactions in the room. Uh, if you're single, you're thinking, man, I braved the snow to come listen to a sermon on marriage when I could have sat in the bed and looked at the live feed uh, and scrolled Twitter or whatever. Um, <laughs> and I, I, I totally get that reaction. I remember when I was single and I would hear you know, the pastor talking, oh, we're going to talk about marriage. Um, and I know it can feel like, uh, well, this doesn't apply to me right now. Well, two things. One, if you hope to get married someday, it's often good to learn about marriage before you get married. Just, just a, a bit of wisdom there. Um, and, and number two, we're actually going to be talking about, uh, you're going to feel this is more uh, relatable to you than you think. Um, and you'll see why as we get into this message. Uh, if you're married, Listen, there's no bigger call for you in your marriage than, than what we see in this passage today. It's huge, and it, it's a weight. And I have to say this, uh, just bluntly, marriage is hard. Amen? All right. Evidently, honey, you and I are the only ones. <laughs> Everybody else's marriage is easy. Um, that's probably because you've been married five minutes. Um, so after five-minute mark, uh, marriage gets hard. Uh, <laughs> And so this, my, my prayer is that this encourages you, this, these two messages, and I, and I hope you'll listen well. And then to those that are, are not Christians, and you're just checking out Christianity, maybe you just came today, or maybe you're tuned in online, and I would just uh, say this, you're going to hear about some, a vision, a biblical vision for marriage, which I would argue is actually higher and more profound and more, uh, it is eternal, and not a temporary sort of um, self-focused view of marriage. And I would also argue this, this view of marriage, this understanding of marriage and living this out, there's a prerequisite for it. And it is faith in Jesus. It doesn't make sense. And you shouldn't even try to remotely live this out until you are fully following Jesus, because that's the purpose uh, of, of marriage here in this passage. So we encourage you towards faith. Listen in, certainly consider what's being said, but um, we want to encourage you towards Christ before you consider towards Christ's purpose and vision of marriage. All right, I'm going to read Ephesians 5, 21 through 33. You'll follow along in your Bible um, or your app. And when I'm done, I'll say, this is the word of the Lord. I invite you to respond by saying, thanks be to God. Paul says, verse 21, submitting to one another out of reverence for Christ. Wives, submit to your own husbands as to the Lord. For the husband is the head of the wife, even as Christ is head of the church, his body and is himself its savior. 
Now, as the church submits to Christ, so also wives should submit in everything to their husbands. Husbands, love your wives as Christ loved the church and gave himself up for her, that he might sanctify her, having cleansed her by the washing of water with the word, so that he might present the church to himself in splendor, without spot or wrinkle or any such thing, that she might be holy and without blemish. In the same way, husbands should love their wives as their own bodies. He who loves his wife loves himself. For no one has ever hated his own flesh, but nourishes it and cherishes it, just as Christ does the church, because we are members of his body. Therefore, a man shall leave his father and mother and hold fast to his wife, and the two shall become one flesh. This mystery is profound, and I am saying that it refers to Christ and the church. However, let each one of you love his wife as himself, and let the wife see that she respects her husband. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Now, First, I want to, right off the bat, a uh, couple of considerations. One, I know that this, this text is controversial, right? It's, uh, it's, it's sometimes quoted in ways that uh, can be confusing. Uh, it's been used to justify things that I would argue other parts of Scripture, significant parts of Scripture, would push back on. Um, and so people rip it out of its context, use it. Um, it's been misused. Uh, but I want to say this as clearly and, um, well, it's been used and, and suggested that this, this type of picture of marriage can actually lead to abuse, especially for women. But I would argue this, and I've yet to have anyone uh, prove this to me from this text. It is not the, fu- the fulfillment of this text can under no circumstances lead to abuse. The actual fulfillment of this passage cannot under any circumstances lead to abuse because as soon as abuse would happen, there's a failure to fulfill this text. Not a fulfillment of the text, a failure of the text. Now, we can talk about the context and the way it frames things out, and somehow that might suggest something, but I would argue it's not the text itself, it's sin that would lead to any sort of abuse. Uh, secondly here, um, I, over the years, I've, I've come to, uh, come to a, a deeper conviction of the beauty of this text and what would be described as the complementarian roles of husbands and wives. This is, this is a deeper conviction for me than it's actually ever been. But at the same time, what I've realized um, over the years, especially working with um, a group of women in our church recently, some of the elders um, on a document, uh, I realized that uh, I have at times let my cultural background and experience inform and shape how I interpreted this text. And it ended up, at times, I feel like I said things kind of heavy-handed to people. There's things that I, when I preached on this, I think it was like 2013 and then 2015. It's been a few years since I preached on it. There's things that I wouldn't say the same way as I said back then. Um, And so I I just want to say, if I ever hurt anyone in this room uh, for that, I am sincerely, I sincerely apologize. And I hope that by God's grace, we can all cut past our cultural baggage because we do bring it to it. Whether it's for or against this text, we all have cultural baggage. Um, But to actually interpret and look at this text for what it says today, uh, and hopefully by God's grace, we'll get a more clear picture of what God intends for marriage. Uh, A recommended book for you is The Meaning of Marriage by Tim and Kathy uh, Keller. So it's not just Tim Keller. Uh, I often cite it. He is the author, but Kathy actually helps him write. Um, And there's some great podcasts with them uh, interacting and talking about this book uh, together. So let's today we're going to look at the underlying relationship that Christ creates throughout his body. And I would argue that that includes marriage, husbands and wives between them. 
uh, the root of marriage, which Paul points to, and then the meaning of marriage, which Paul, which is the fundamental like setup for this passage and for next week's message. So let's talk about the fundamental relationship in the church. In other words, the underlying relationship. To make sense of this passage, to make sense of verses 22 through 31, you have to include verse 21. Grammatically, Verse 21 is the last of a list of participles that Paul, Paul gave. We talked about this last week. The last of a list of participles Paul gave that happen are actions that flow out of us when we are full of the Spirit. So chapter 5, verse 18 says, don't get drunk with wine, but be filled with the Spirit. And then he talks about praising God, singing uh, with each other, giving thanks together. And then he adds, verse 21, submitting to one another out of reverence for Christ. This points to a fundamental underlying relationship in the church. And one of the reasons why we know verse 21 goes with the rest is this. Verse 22 doesn't have a verb. So it's Paul says, submitting to one another out of reverence for Christ. Wives to your husbands is what it literally says in the original language. And so when, whenever that happens in the way that's written, it's always borrowing the verb from the previous uh, text, uh, previous sentence. So in this case, submitting to one another out of reverence for Christ. So he's pointing to this fundamental relationship that we are submitting, all of us, all people are submitting to one another out of reverence for Christ. That, that's just a general idea, but, what, but uh, Paul really fills this in and what he's uh, talking about how we belong to each other in verses 29 and 30. So he says, for no one ever hated his own flesh, but nourishes it and cherishes it just as Christ does the church Look at verse 30, because we are members of his body. So Paul is pointing to and and making sure we understand that as members of Jesus' body, we are a family. And as a family, we submit to one another out of reverence for Christ. This is how we operate. Um, And when this comes to marriage, this is an extremely important truth that I think often gets overlooked and not talked about uh, when it comes to marriage. And whether it's uh, churches that idealize marriage or have some super high structured view of marriage, it is this. A husband and wife are fundamentally and eternally brother and sister in Christ before they are husband and wife. And I would argue after they're husband and wife. You see, marriage is temporary. Marriage only lasts for a lifetime, but, but a relationship as a brother and sister in Christ is deeper, more fundamental, and eternal than that, than just simply marrying. So Paul says then, submitting to one another out of reverence for Christ, he's laying a groundwork, an essential foundation for all of us. That means whether you're married or single, it means that um, I am your brother in Christ, whether you're married or single. Uh, Teresa is your sister in Christ, whether you're married or single. And in one sense, we relate in that way uh, as a foundation on which everything else is built. And when marriage is over, I know, I know uh, everybody loves the romantic idea, I'll love you forever, we'll be together forever. Well, no, you won't. Hate to tell you, uh, disappoint you, but Teresa and I are not going to be married in eternity. You got to go join Mormonism if you want to be married forever. Um, but Christianity teaches and the Bible teaches that marriage ends. Marriage comes to a completion. Why? Because it's a temporary picture of an ultimate reality. It's a temporary billboard on a road as you drive by to the destination. 
You guys all know that, right? Like there's, there's the, you know, uh, SeaWorld uh, billboard in the middle of North Carolina on I-95 and you're driving along. That's not the destination. No one stopped and went, oh, we're here, you know. Uh, they, they kept going. Why? Because it's just meant to point to the destination. Earthly marriage, we're going to see this more fully today, is meant to point to the ultimate destination. Therefore, this is why CGs are important. This is why single people are important and not secondary in the family of God. There's, there's, it's an essential brotherhood and sisterhood. And I think as, as Christians, sometimes we, uh, as human beings, we like to hang out with the people that are like us. It's a natural, it's called affinity, right? I mean, if you don't like people like you, that means you probably don't like yourself. Um, and so if you like to hang out, why do we hang out with people that are like us? Often because it's easier. And married couples can hang out with married couples. That's fine. I'm not knocking that, not trying to tear that down. I'm simply saying we will gravitate towards that to the neglect of our brothers and sisters in Christ who are single at times. We need to understand we are brothers and sisters in Christ and we're submitting to one another, which is a selfless love, a picture of hospitality, generosity, deferring to others' needs above your own. That, that's the foundation of how we should operate in the church, period. Which means we don't play favorites for people even that, that are like us, right? We're quick to open our spaces, open our lives to share with each other. This is why community groups are so important, that's why community groups, I understand some community groups just end up being like all you know, married people or almost all single people. That happens from time to time, not, not knocking that. That just sometimes is proximity, night of the week, whatever. Um, I'm saying that, that in, at its best, it should picture a, 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 a large um, extended family. A large extended family that looks more like a family than an organized official group. Which means people should start, well, you know, think, I, I thought about this actually the other night in our CG. Um, there were a few people out, but it ended up being uh, one husband without his wife, um, Therese and I, the only married couple, and three single women who were three decades apart from the oldest to the youngest. And, and it was great. And I realized what a gift that is. I thought about each person in that group and what a gift they are to me uh, as, as my brother and my sisters in Christ. Um, and so we have this opportunity of mutual submission uh, out of reverence for Christ as members of Christ's body. Uh, this, I would argue, also points to the call for us to open our homes to each other, hospitality, but also I would suggest even opening up your home and, and living together, like having, uh, having people live with you that are single. Uh, some of you have done that over the years. One of the first stories I heard, we were probably a year or two in, um, and he, uh, a young couple in the church uh, decided to get a, a two-bedroom apartment with this uh, single PhD student. And, and they, because they were just like, you know, we, we enjoy hanging out together, we encourage each other, we pray together. And I remember talking to uh, both of them individually or separately and just how it blessed them. Um, over the years, Teresa and I have had several uh, singles live with us. One of them, the first one, actually shortly after we moved into our home, uh, was a guy named Jonathan. And Jonathan was a seminary student. He was an intern here um, and lived with us about six months. Uh, and, and now it's like so great to see he's actually a, a, a father. Uh, or, uh, he's a husband. <laughs> That's good. Uh, <laughs> he's a husband and a father of three girls and his pastor at Kings uh, Hill Church in Mission Hill. 
Um, I saw him this last week and it was just great to, to see him. And I realized there's a connection there that we'll always have because of how close God allowed us to be. So I want to ask you, if you're married, do you see each other through this lens? Uh, do you see your spouse as your brother in Christ or as your sister in Christ? Fundamentally, even beyond them being your spouse, that's an important thing to do. Um, as a CG, I would like to ask CGs to actually, it would be fun is to ask this question and, and discuss it. What does a vibrant, extended family that lives in a community together look like? A vibrant, healthy, connected family, extended family. Let's, that's why we go there, because it's like blood people tend to relate this way. But let's talk about what that would look like for us uh, as extended family in Christ. So that's the fundamental underlying relationship in the church and in marriage. And then Paul wants to give, make sure we're rooted in the marriage, um, the roots of marriage in creation, that we go back and see marriage wasn't some idea, wasn't some, uh, some people sitting around a cave in the late, late Bronze Age, like, hey, you know what would be a good idea? Um, let's have people commit to each other for a lifetime, and they'll stay together, and they'll have kids and grandkids. And that, that wasn't how it happened. It was intentional. God, God created marriage. And Paul reiterates this in verse 31. You may have just read right over it, not realized it, but verse 31 is a quote from Genesis 2.24. Exact quote. Paul says, Therefore a man shall leave his father and mother and hold fast to his wife, and the two shall become one flesh. So Paul is rooting marriage in his teaching on marriage here back in creation, in the in created order. And then Genesis, uh, and if you want to look all of that up, Genesis 2.15 through 25 is really where you find all of that. Um, but God designed marriage for human flourishing. Listen, in order that husbands and wives as image bearer w- bearers would be able to carry out the cultural mandate to multiply, fill the earth, and subdue it. So marriage was for human flourishing. There's a purpose there in marriage. And God himself uh, orchestrated the first marriage. If you, if you look at the story and you see what happens, God actually you know, makes Eve and then he brings Eve, his daughter, to, to Adam and presents her. Just like a, a dad walking his daughter down the aisle, presenting her to uh, her husband. Um, and and um, Adam knew at that moment that she was fundamentally like him, meaning they were meant to be together. Um, it's interesting, God separated Adam and Eve when he took, uh, he took the rib and created Eve. They separated, but then through marriage, there's a physical and soul level reconnection, meaning that there's a, supposed to be an interdependence in the way that husbands and wives relate to each other. Marriage is um, pictured here and throughout the Bible as a covenant. I know that's a weird word if you're not a Christian. Covenant is, you're maybe more used to contract, but contract is different. Uh, A covenant is a promise relationship established by God. So it is established by God and people say, I will do this, period. And the other person says, I will do this, period. Um, We do it in our vows, right? I I don't, I've never heard, never uh, overseen or heard of a marriage. Maybe, maybe it does happen from time to time, but vows where a person's like, you know, I will do this and this and this and this um, as long as you do your part. No, you, I mean, think about it. You make crazy statements, unconditional statements about what you will do. You don't, there's no caveat. There's no asterisk in your vows where you're like, as long as you do your part, you know? Um, and it's crazy, and we say, till death do us part, 
We're like literally preparing for our marriage to end, by the way. I don't know if you've ever realized that. The day you get married, you prepare for your marriage also to end. That's not a bad thing, right? I'm not trying to be negative. I'm just simply helping us to take marriage out of some of the crazy cultural categories we have and, and like frame it out better. In this covenant relationship, we see Adam was meant to be the servant leader of his family. So he was in the garden before Eve. He actually named all the animals. And then when Eve came to him, God allowed him to actually name her. Um, this interconnectedness and mutual responsibility for bearing the image of God was fleshed out through Adam at that moment. And then Eve was created, quite literally it says, as a helper fit for him. Meaning, this is where the word complementarianism comes from. That, that, that the wife and husband, wife is made to complement and work with her husband to come alongside her husband. And this is not a derogatory term. I have all, uh, not only biblically is the Hebrew word used of God himself, that God is our helper, Exact same Hebrew word. So it can't be derogatory. But number two, I've always said this. Um, who, who, uh, who is the more powerful person, the one who needs help or the one who has help to give? I think it's the one who has help to give. That there's a dynamic there and a power there that's, that's ordained by God that the husband and wife together can image God in this world. So marriage is rooted in creation, but then it was broken by sin. That's what I was talking about earlier. Anybody who's been married knows that, knows that when you take two selfish people and you put them in a covenant together where they are sharing their lives together, what's going to happen? Sin, right? There is no sinless marriage. We're all broken. And this is why Jesus himself addresses the brokenness of marriage in Matthew 19 verses 4 through 8. He speaks about divorce here and and the relationship between the husband and wife and what God does there. Look at what he says. He answered, have you not read that he who created them from the beginning made them male and female and said, therefore a man shall leave his father and his mother and hold fast to his wife and the two shall become one flesh. So Jesus is quoting Genesis 2.24 again. So they are no longer two but one flesh. Now listen to what Jesus says. What therefore God has joined together, let not man separate. They said to him, why then did Moses command one to give a certificate of divorce to send her away? He said to them, because of your hardness of heart, God allowed you to divorce your wives from the beginning. But from the beginning, it was not so. So God remind, uh, Jesus reminds us that God made marriage, male and female, made husband and wife to come together in a covenant for a lifetime, uninterrupted by, by sin or divorce. In a real sense, um, and he tells us then also that, that God joined them together, right? So I don't know if you caught that. Jesus didn't say what God did join back with Adam and Eve together. He says, what God has joined together, let no man separate. So in a very real sense, I, I would argue this, that anytime a, a man and a woman are joined in marriage, God does something. God didn't just create the first marriage. He recreates something in that moment. And this is why divorce um, exists uh, because of, of sin. So why, why God's grieved by it. Now, not every marriage, not every divorce is a sin. But in every case, sin leads to divorce. Uh, every divorce uh, happens because of sin, one way or the other. So sometimes it's, you know, biblically, God gives grounds for divorce. Um, but whatever the root is, it's always sin. It's never because our marriage was completely awesome. It's incredible. And she loves me and I love her and we serve each other. And, and then we just decided to go our separate ways. No, there's a, there's a brokenness there that enters in. 
But Jesus is teaching us here, and I want to remind us this. Jesus, uh, Paul is teaching us, and Jesus is teaching us, that this picture of marriage is not rooted in a culture, not rooted in a temporary fleeting moment of time, but in creation itself. Um, and then we'll argue, he, uh, Paul argues from here that marriage's ultimate meaning is not up to us, but is actually revealed in Christ. And let's talk about that. The actual meaning of marriage. This is our, our final point here. The, the meaning of marriage. What is marriage for? Why does it exist? Throughout this passage, Paul connects the relationship between a husband and a wife with Christ's relationship with his church. Look at verse 32. This mystery is profound. And I'm saying that it refers to Christ and the church. Now, if you've been through Ephesians and the whole study, you remember back in chapter one, this word mystery is used. The word mystery is just not like a, um, like a modern mystery, right, where we figure something out. It's the idea of something that was once not known, but that has now been revealed. And so what, what Paul is telling us here is that God's revealing something about marriage that he hadn't revealed even in the Old Testament. Even throughout the all, through the all scripture, he's revealing in this moment that marriage is ultimately about Christ and his church. Every marriage is about Christ and his church. That's the ultimate purpose of your marriage. It's why your marriage exists. And it is the highest calling of your marriage. Not your children, not not your jobs, not your career, not even loving other people. It is to point to Christ and his church. It's a picture. It's a model of the real thing. I don't know if you ever played with models as a kid. Um, I was I was not um, artistic at all uh, as a child. I'm still not. Um, I, I have never had that gene, whatever gene that is. Um, I remember art class as a child, or what I came to later call an exercise in futility, um, where I kept getting C's, and the 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 no matter how hard I tried, I get C's. And I think the teacher thought I wasn't really trying, but my parents knew. They kind of had seen me sit at the kitchen table and kind of knew this, that he was not going to grow up to be an artist. Um, and I, I, it was so bad. I swear one day I was like doing some chalk, uh, you know, some uh, charcoal thing, uh, you know, drawing of something. And my art teacher, I heard her walk by. And I swear, she looked down and as she started walking away, I heard her say, oh. <laughs> um, <laughs> So I was bad. So my parents learned real quick. We have to. We want to help him with some kind of art. So he likes cars. Let's get him a model. Some model cars. So they gave me little model cars. And you know, if you ever had one or seen one, they come in a box with a picture of the real thing on the outside. And I had to open it up and look at these 742 parts. And and how is that going to ever look like that? Um, but I would, you know, I'd put the. They figured if it had pre-cut parts. Clear instructions and a picture of what it's supposed to look like that somehow I could follow that, which I did. Um, but what was interesting was afterwards, after I'd put it together, I wouldn't just compare it to the box, I would compare it to the real thing. You know, as a 78 Trans Am, I'd, I'd like hold it up and try to compare it to what a 78 Trans Am really looked like. And you know what? It was always terrible. <laughs> It was like a, like a knockoff of a knockoff of a knockoff, right? It, it just never, but, it, but it, was, it, it resembled it. And I think that we need to think of our marriages that way. That that's what marriage is meant to do. It's meant to be a model. That we're called to be a model, a display for the world to look at and not go, oh, look at that couple. They're so amazing. Aren't they super incredible? The way they love each other, care for each other. They are awesome. That's not the point of our marriage. 
Our marriage is meant that people would see Christ through us, not think about how crazy, how incredible we are. I remember the first time I had a, a couple, um, actually it was just a, it was a dude that was doing premarital counseling and he just said like, man, I just really hope that, uh, that my wife and I can have a marriage like you, you and Teresa. And I, I thought to myself, <laughs> like, I'm hoping better for you, but you know, <laughs> no, <laughs> no, I, but I did think like, uh, maybe they've seen, they've seen something, some glimpse there, you know, and, and, and that's good. Like, I was glad about that, but then I think I went home and got in a fight with Teresa or something. So, um, but I'm just reminded like, that's, that's the beauty of it. We're, we're, we're finite, we're weak, we're sinful, we're going to do selfish things. But somehow, as we try to fill this passage, we try to love each other in the way that Christ is picturing here, we picture something beautiful and display Christ and his church. So what does this passage tell us about Christ and his church? And then we'll close. Um, well, it pictures, and then next week we'll get to the specifics, right, of, of, of um, how this works out in your marriage. But let's look at the, the roles here uh, of Christ and his church. Jesus is pictured as the husband, right? And first he's seen as the, he is described as Jesus is the head of his church, his body. So Christ's headship over his body, over, over his church, has been explained already in verses one, chapter one, verse 22 and 23, over everything uh, for the church, chapter four, verse 15 and 16, over the church. This headship points to his role and responsibility that he has um, uh, as, as head of the church. The second thing we see is that Jesus loved the church and gave himself for her. Jesus is the example of love. In fact, I would argue that love, love cannot be really understood without understanding Jesus, without knowing Jesus. And, I, and I'm not knocking, I'm not saying that married couples that aren't Christians can have happy marriages and good marriages. I'm not, I'm not saying that. I'm simply saying they cannot understand the depth of love without understanding Jesus. Why? Because we don't tend to love things we find, unless we find them lovable. In fact, we rarely, if ever, will love something we find unlovable. And rarely, if ever, and probably never, would we give our lives for someone or something that is completely unlovable and contributes nothing to us. That's the love of Christ. That love can only be pictured by Christ. And we see love as Jesus' predetermined, unconditional act of his will that drove him to the cross to purchase his church. And you, you have to understand, he doesn't fall in and out of love with the church. He isn't kind of looking around and going, hey, what about her over there? I'm, like, I'm not sure I like my church anymore. I like them. I like those people over there. No, he loves his church. He's not looking uh, around, scouting the horizon for other people. He loves his church. He's not going to abandon his church. He may not always be happy with his church, but he is, um, but he is always driven to love his church. And how does his love work out? It is primarily expressed in self-sacrificing on the cross for the church. And the language that Paul uses here are two things. He says to sanctify her, to sanctify the church, that is to make her holy. He cleansed her by the washing of water with the word. So this isn't just about redeeming the church. Christ doesn't just go, I'm going to redeem you guys out of sin. He goes, no, I'm going to make you beautiful. 
I'm going to redeem you out of sin, and then I'm going to make you into everything you ever long for and hope in life. I'm, I'm going to make you to flourish. And so we see Jesus today, um, that he won't rest until his church is all she is meant to be. He empowers, intercedes, directs, and shepherds his church today. How does he do this? Does he come in heavy-handed and, and bark out orders to us all and tell us what to do? No, what does Jesus even do today? He comes tenderly in love. He comes tenderly in compassion. He has unending grace for his church, right? He doesn't resent the fact that we've blown it. He knows it, but he loves us anyway and still leads us. So he sanctifies her and then he presents her, the second picture here is to present her to himself, holy without blemish. This is the wedding feast in the book of Revelation. So the Bible starts, I don't know if you ever thought about this, the Bible starts in Genesis with a a marriage and ends with a marriage. But this marriage is not between a man and a woman, it's between Jesus and his church. And it's described as a wedding feast, right? And he is all in on that. And he is looking forward to the day, it says he will clothe us with white robes and, and throw a party like we've never seen. Think about all that goes into a wedding these days, right? I'm just glad we're not getting married. (laughs) It's so hard. I mean, it was hard back then, but it's so hard now, right? All the complexities of the, the, you gotta have the venue, you've gotta have the photographers, the cakes, the flowers, the dresses, the tuxes, the invitations, all of this. And it can overwhelm a couple. I've done so many premarital uh, courses and classes with couples and and, uh, they get, you know, they're about a month and a half, two months out and they have this like really haggard look they're like, we think we've got it all, but we're pretty sure we don't actually. Uh, and so, uh, you know, what's interesting is I've never, I, I get this, I get a really awesome perspective at weddings that I officiate. That is, I get to, I'm the one, one person, I mean, there, there are, you know, grimsmen and brides, but like, I'm the one in the middle. I got like a full view of everything. And one of my favorite things to do is see this, you know, the, the, the doors open and the bride starts walking, the groom, groomsmen, I look at the bride briefly and then I look at him. Like, I love looking at the guys. Um, But I've never had a guy look over at me, you know, as she starts down and go, totally not worth it. (sighs) No. What happens? In that moment, if she sees him and as he sees her, it's, it's just all fades, doesn't it? It just fades into the background, and you're like, what, what did we, what was that hard stuff we did? And that's how Jesus is for us today. We're going to be swallowed up into this wedding feast, and all the difficulties and challenges and sin that we face in this world is going to be ended in that moment when we see his face. The final thing we see from Jesus, the husband here, is he nourishes and cherishes the church. This word is this picture of care and, and cherishing is literally the word keeps it warm. So he's like, he's affectionately caring for the church. And the flip side is the bride, right? The church. And a couple of things we see in this passage. Uh, the first is the church submits to Christ as head and is his body. This is our responsibility, Right? The church is the hands, the feet, and the voice of Jesus Christ in the world today. He is our head. We honor Jesus with how we live and what we do. Even uh, as we, uh, back in verse 21, we submit to one another out of what? Reverence for Christ, right? He's, he's the bridegroom. He's, the, he's the, the husband pictured. But secondly, we also see here today that the church lives under the benefits of having Christ as head. 
Having Jesus is the best thing that's ever happened to a group of people on planet Earth. He not only redeemed us out of sin, but he protects us, he guides us, directs us, and and has given us eternal life. Paul is pulling marriage up out of this human-centered, sort of blinders-on, marriage is about me, marriage is for me, marriage is about my happiness, or maybe just our happiness even, um, and, 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 and giving it an eternal, huge purpose. You see, one day, my marriage is going to be swallowed up. Might be temporarily swallowed up by death, but in eternity, as we, we stand before Jesus my marriage will fade as a, as a model car into the background as we look at the real thing, as a billboard that passed by on the road and we're at the thing, right? That's what marriage is about. This is why I would encourage you, if you're single, don't idealize marriage. You can make an idol of marriage and you can idealize marriage, both of whom, both things will, will let you down and will keep you from actually fulfilling what God would have you uh, to do if you're married, so as we close, a, a few questions and just for you to reflect. First, have you been living out this call to submit yourself to others? Or do you find yourself constantly going, well, what's in it for me? What about my rights? What about my, what I deserve? We're called to submit ourselves to each other out of reverence for Christ. Think about, I don't know why this term's been coming up so much, but I think it's because of Zoom meetings and like, and for two years, we not seeing people face to face. I just think that when we see each other face to face, we have those like little interactions, it provides the term I've been using, relational grease, right? It provides a relational grease that just helps us to get along together. And when we have to deal with hard stuff, we already got all that foundation and we can do it. But Zoom forced us to not be able to have those sort of interactions in the same way. Um, submitting to one another, having that attitude towards each other becomes like this relational grease through the whole church where we're able to overlook each other's offenses, where we're able to love each other sacrificially. If you're married, question for you, is your marriage about you? Or are you giving yourself for God's purpose for marriage? And then finally, every Christian in here, are you resting in Christ? Are you resting in the love of the bridegroom for the church, which you're part of? Not the future you, not the the you who read, read their Bible every day this next week, right? Not you who has it all together and you're the perfect dad or you're the perfect mom or you have your job, you're killing it and you've got every, your whole life organized perfectly and everything and, and, and there's no anxiety or fear in you and you're just able to operate in this zone of flourishing. Not that guy or that woman, but you. Today, with all your idiosyncrasies, all your insecurities, all the fears that you brought in through that door with you, all the anxieties, all the struggles you have with your spouse today, with your friends today, with other family members today, with your, with your coworkers, he sees all of that. Listen, six times love is used in this passage, and it's every time talks about Jesus and his love. And I think we'd be fools to miss that today. That he loves each of you dearly. So we're going to take communion here in just a moment. If you're a Christian, anytime over this next song, you can take it. But I, I want us to remind ourselves, this is, a, this is a meal, right? This is a meal that Jesus established on the night that he was betrayed by Judas. He was with his disciples. He took the bread and he broke it and gave thanks and broke it. Gave it to his disciples, says, this is my body broken for you. He, he took the cup and he passed it and he said, this cup is the new covenant in my blood. Do this as often as you will in remembrance of me. 
And so it's the picture of the cross, right? His body broken, his blood poured out for us. But it's a meal, and it's a meal that's a temporary meal, just like marriage. You see, one day, every little bit of communion we've had will be caught up in a final meal, the wedding feast. And today, as you're taking communion as a Christian, I want you to look back to what Christ did for you on the cross and look forward with hope, knowing he loves you and he has it ready for you. Do that with assurance. If you're not a Christian, this is the one part we'd ask you to not participate in. You can just uh, sing through this next song. You can sit and pray. Um, if you want to know more about how to, uh, what it means to become a Christian, to, to know who Jesus is, uh, we invite you to mark on your connection card. You can drop that in the basket later uh, at the welcome table, and we'll follow up with you. We'll, we'll help you in that journey. That's one of our greatest joys. Let's go ahead and stand. I'll pray, and we can respond together. Jesus, uh, thank you for just this incredible picture that you've given us today of your unrelenting, unconditional, eternal love for us. And I, I thank you that we can come today in that truth, in that reality, knowing that, that every one of us has failed you this week. And we can with open hands can repent and can confess and repent of our sin before you and experience freedom, experience renewed joy and you will renew our minds and our hearts by your spirit i thank you for this picture of marriage and i know that even as i've been preparing this my own heart lord i'm just reminded of ways that i don't press into this that i don't love my wife like pictured in this text so i pray that you would help me help each of us uh, to embrace this purpose of our marriage that it would display and i pray that whether a person is single or married lord they would um, we would encourage all the marriages around us to live this out for your glory, for our joy, we pray. Amen.